Good day to you all and herzlich willkommen to the Botschtuber podcast. This podcast brings together some of the most influential historians, politicians, and more from across the United States and former lands of the Habsburg Empire to discuss the incredible people and events that connect them. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for offering me this chance. Thank you for having us here. Just to give a brief introduction, today I'm here with Dr. Deborah Cohen a professor at the university or at Northwestern University and the chair of their history department. She's written numerous articles for publications such as the New York Times and the Atlantic. And today we're talking about her latest book, Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, which follows the journeys of five of uh, the best foreign correspondents from the interwar period up to World War II from the United States. Uh, you refer to these five journalists as the inner circle in your book. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction into who the inner circle is and why at, in the 1920s these five Americans wanted to go overseas and be foreign correspondents? Absolutely. So first of all, I'm so grateful to you for doing this interview and also to the Botchdeva Foundation for having funded um, part of this research. So. The group of reporters that are at the heart of my book were all young Americans in the 1920s. Um, and they decided to go to see the world for themselves. And in the middle of their journeys, they got caught up in chronicling the rise of the European dictators and also chronicling the movements against imperialism that were developing at this time, especially in Asia. So those uh, five people who are at the inner circle of the book. Um, first of all, John Gunther, who was a young Chicagoan, a cub reporter for the Chicago Daily News, big, affable, handsome. Uh, he goes abroad. The Daily News actually refuses to allow him to go abroad because it's kind of a reserve, mm. a job that's reserved for people who are much more experienced. Mm -hmm. um, but he becomes one of the biggest journalists of his time with more bestsellers than anyone other than the romance novelist Daphne du Maurier from the mid 30s through the end of the 1950s. Um, and his big breakout book is Inside Europe, published in 1936, which is a kind of taboo breaking account mm. of the dictators um, and other European politicians. The second figure, so these are all people who they don't know each other when they start off by and large, but then they become friends and rivals and sometimes lovers. And <laughs> one of John Gunther's closest friends is a man named H.R. Knickerbocker, who's a Texan. He walks into the beer hall in Munich where the putsch is taking place in 1923. In fact, he goes into journalism. And he is one of the journalists um, who is supposedly the journalist whom Mussolini views as the person who is worth reading all the way through. Mm. Um, the only journalist, the only foreign correspondent who Mussolini reads all the way through, that's his claim. Um, he breaks a number of really crucial stories, including a story in 1939 about the assets that Germans have stashed abroad. Um, their mutual friend um, is a woman named Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy Thompson becomes one of the most important um, observers of the European scene. She interviews everyone from Freud to 
Hitler to Dolphus, everyone, mm. anyone who's anyone speaks to Dorothy Thompson in the 20s and 30s. Um, and she eventually ends up with an op-ed column. She's the first woman to be an op-ed, to have a political column of her own. Um, and that happens in the late 30s. And she's speaking to an estimated audience of eight to 10 million people three times a week. So, and or one of her big crusades becomes raising the alarm about the Nazi menace. Um, and then the fourth journalist is a man named Vincent Sheehan. Vincent Sheehan has the era-defining book, a book called Personal History, which is published in 1935 that seeks to map out the relationship between one young man and his time. Um, and that is about Sheehan's attempt to kind of chart a path between his own inclinations towards a collective life, meaning Soviet communism, and his essential kind of fondness for the individual um, and for an artistic life. And then the fifth person is someone who you wouldn't have seen necessarily in the newspapers, although she was a sometimes foreign correspondent, but her name is Frances Feynman. And in the 20s, she meets John Gunther and then marries him. And he credits her for a very long time with his very best ideas. Mm. So we'll get into them and why it is, why marriage is so significant. And you take this kind of semi-personal, but also semi-professional approach to their work uh, you analyze not only their very personal letters between each other and just with other acquaintances that they had, but also their articles and the books that they produced. How did you get initially involved with these five of the inner circle and kind of what drew you to their story? So I went to the University of Chicago to look at the Gunther papers because um, I was researching something else. And then almost immediately I was drawn in both by the range of his contacts and the kind of things that he was interested in, and then also the ways in which this archive, as I was working in it week after week after week, the mix of, as you say, the political and sort of his work, the geopolitical mm -hmm. really, contacts with all these statesmen, and then his personal life mm -hmm. as well, was so distinctive, or at least I thought it was distinctive. Um, it turns out that it was much more broadly characteristic mm -hmm. of this group of people. But at any rate, so I got, I started to read, I would spend my days sort of reading on the one hand about him interviewing Dolphus, the Austrian dictator, or going to see Trotsky, the prophet of worldwide revolution in exile. So that, but then interspersed with those interview notes would be him writing diary entries about his relationship to Francis, his wife or about his feelings about his friends, or gossip about his friends' marriages. Mm. And increasingly, it became clear to me that what this group of people was doing, and what's really important about their work, is that they were mapping out the interconnections between inner life and geopolitics. Should I say more? Uh, that? To, that, to that point, uh, during part of the book, I think I believe it's Dorothy, or I believe it's Dorothy on the train with Hitler. Yeah. So Dorothy meets and interviews Hitler. Mm. Yeah. And um, she's on the train, and she says, "Oh, he's not what I would have expected. He doesn't seem like Hitler." Exactly. Right. So Dorothy Thompson, who is one of the most astute and um, smartest commentators 
on European affairs has what her friends, um, John Gunther and Jimmy Sheehan, later refer to as a comico terrible gaffe, which is that she really underestimates Hitler. Mm. So she's been hoping to see him since 1923, since the Beer Hall Putsch. She, at that point, is a young reporter for the Philadelphia um, Public Ledger. She's abroad. She keeps petitioning to see him. He's a very difficult man to see because he really doesn't like to see foreign reporters. But eventually, in 1931, she gets an audience with Hitler. Mm. And she's expecting him to be this imposing, impressive person. And she writes an article, and then later a little book, called I Saw Hitler. Mm -hmm. And her point is that Hitler is not the kind of world beater that people are imagining mm -hmm. that he's going to be. Instead, he's like a small, he's a little man. And then she takes the aim, she says, he crooks his finger. I bet he crooks his finger when he sips his tea, meaning that a kind of dig at effeminacy or an implication of homosexuality, mm -hmm. um, which is a rumor that's always dogging the Nazis in the American press at this point. Mm -hmm. And she essentially says, you know, I thought I was going to, you know, have to smell my smelling salts, but instead, and have the vapors, but instead what I realized that this is a man who's of complete insignificance. And of course, a horrendous misjudgment mm -hmm. of the situation. But at the same time, an astute observation, I feel, because now... A lot of the inner circle based their reporting around, even if they didn't mean to, the idea of, of the ideology of Freudianism. And it seemed like a very similar instance to me how when Russia had invaded Ukraine at the start of it, one of the big stories was how isolated Putin had made himself and how those very personal emotional table. relationships yes. exactly right. reflect into their approach to politics and estrangement from potential allies, it's, it overlapped quite well. And I think that uh, in, in one of the parts, I think Francis is explaining while she's pregnant to John that he needs to not just explain what he's seeing and giving the facts in that way, he needs to be able to look deeper into it. Totally. And yes. how on the, on, the, on the surface, a lot of these great figures are these great figures, but there's a lot that gets them to that point and makes them make the decisions that they do make. No, that's exactly right. So one of the dynamics in the book is that Frances, who has great trouble writing, so she has just an epic case of writer's block, but she's a very smart and very canny analyst. And so when I said at the start, John credits her with giving him his best ideas. Mm. Part of what she is always doing is exhorting him to improve and to really dig deeper. And so you know, to Dorothy Thompson's idea that, that Hitler is an insignificance, then Francis, who's really a very strict Marxist and Freudian, would say, yes, but, you know, what is his appeal? What made him the man whom he is? Mm. Don't we have to know those things? Why is it that people are so drawn to him? So those kinds of questions were the kind of deeper questions that Francis is asking John to ask, not just to, sort of questions about personality, about upbringing, um, about family, but also questions about economics. So she felt like he's a kind of typical American newspaper reporter mm. at the time. This would be her characterization, who is always scraping the surface. Did the approaches of these individuals change your own um, understanding of how journalism should be conducted? or? So less how journalism should be conducted than more 
it explained to me a lot of why things are the way they are, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So let me just take one example, which is the objectivity debate, right? Which is just evergreen in American journalism. And seeing that the 1920s and the 1930s had their own objectivity mm-hmm. debates made me feel like, okay, the both sidesism that journalists are accused of mm-hmm. now is very much of a kind of always in a sort of dynamic tension with the side taking, which is what the group of journalists, the heart of last call end up doing, right? Their movement from the 1920s is they're trained in objectivity mm-hmm. and then they decide really ferociously, they have to take sides. Mm-hmm. Um, too much is at stake other than, you know, they can't kind of go on as they have been. And so that sort of sense about debates that are cons- that seem really fresh, but actually when you read the longer history, you feel like, oh, this, this has been going on for a mm-hmm. very long time. I think another thing, too, around the Ukraine invasion, I think one of the things that was very striking to me was how much people focused on the personalities both of Putin and Zelensky. Mm-hmm. And in part, Putin's personality, as you say, mm-hmm. we focus on because that's all the information that we have, right? Yep. Or that's what journalists can see. How does Putin behave? Why that 20-foot long table? How isolated is he? Is the table symbolic? And what we can't get at, because it's impossible in such a repressive, unfree society, is what kind of support does he have? So that. You know, we have all sorts of guesswork, mm-hmm. you know, so is it 70% of people who really support the invasion? What percentage of people know about it and really what's going on? And so just like happens in the 1930s, a lot of the focus then shifts where you can't speculate or we can only speculate about public opinion and you can't actually understand very much about what people are saying, um, kind of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Um, then inevitably the the discussion sort of redounds it goes back to the personality of the leaders themselves and that's very much the kind of reporting um especially that john gunther and h.r knickerbocker do and they themselves had a hard time separating their work from their personal lives and it's quite a predicament when you're at when you're interviewing these people where the stakes are so high with their decisions and such and there were two stories that stood out to me. I don't know if they were both actually included in the book, but there's um, Dorothy Thompson when she is in New York. There is a convention of Nazis. Yeah. And could, could you elaborate on that story? Yeah, you could so, tell it better than I yeah, can. No, so Dorothy Thompson um, decides to drop in on a meeting of the the Bund, which is basically the sort of neo-Nazi, or the Nazi rather, I should say, um, organization uh, in America that is happening at Madison Square Gardens. And she says that she's just decided to drop in and see what's going on. on, But in fact, she's dressed spectacularly Mm -hmm. for the news photographs, which um, suggests perhaps that she was thinking exactly about what she was going to do. And so as these various American fascists take the stage, Dorothy Thompson, sitting in the press section, in the press box, starts to heckle them. And she says things like, bunk, this is Mein Kampf, word for word. Um, And what happens is she's actually thrown out of the meeting, um, escorted out uh, ostensibly for her own safety. She insists on returning so she can heckle them some more. But the result is that the front pages the next morning 
have not just the Bund meeting, mm. um, but also Dorothy Thompson's own interruptions mm -hmm. and heckling. And she makes them seem ridiculous, actually, you know, like the kind of wannabe Nazis. Mm. So, yeah, so that's one example. So, and, you know, at that very moment, she's kind of locked in combat with her second husband, the writer, novelist, and Nobel laureate, Sinclair Lewis. Mm. And he says things like, if Dorothy's in favor of U.S. intervention in the war, then I'm going to rent Madison Square Gardens and argue for uh, non-intervention, for not going to the war. So just in that little story, you can see the ways in which big geopolitical events are getting refracted through people's inner lives. And what was it, because nowadays it seems obvious to a lot of people that the U.S. would was the help that was needed and that interventionism should have been the answer even earlier than it was. What convinced these five journalists so early on that the U.S. needed to play a bigger role when it wasn't as clear to a lot of Americans at the time? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's also, there's a kind of pendant question to it as well, which is to what, how much did they actually manage mm. to convince people themselves through their writings? You know, they have firsthand experience of the rise of fascism. And so at a moment, you know, in 1926 already, John Gunther is writing to a girl he wants to impress back in Chicago. You know, essentially, hey ho, dictatorship, he says. You know, I think people are saying that democracy is the big story, but it isn't. It's dictatorship. That's the big story of what's happening. Um, so and Gunther knows that because he's sitting in East Central Europe, right? He's he's sort of the roving correspondent for mm. the Chicago Daily News. And so he's going everywhere from Greece to Turkey to all over the former Habsburg Empire. He's in Romania, he's in Austria, he's in Hungary. And he sees that this people talking about, you know, democracy are just have totally lost the plot. Mm. They don't see what's happening. And so all of them have this experience of living in societies that where you can feel, you know, rising tensions, economic collapse, and all of them know, not just that, you know, democracy is finished um, in those places, but also they all know that a war is coming. Mm. And there's a kind of joke in their group, you know, are you an end of 35 or meaning do you think war is going to come at the end of 1935 or a start of uh, 1937 or um, so they're perspicacious and they're also on the spot hmm. and they developed these beliefs kind of as they got to know the political systems better for some of them it was pretty immediate but what was their opinion at the time of the Paris Peace Conference yeah. for those that were reporting already yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it points to something, you're pointing to something else that's really important, which is that we think, of course, if you saw dictatorship, you would always know what it was about. But even for people on the spot, that's not the case. And mm -hmm. they argue about it. I mean, witness Dorothy Thompson, who's just wrong about Hitler. You know, all of them as young people are attracted by Wilsonian ideals. So internationalism, the ideals of you know, the world that is going to be safe for democracy. But they go and they sit at the League of Nations in Geneva and they think, you know, this is ostrich. These are ostriches. These are people with their heads stuck in the sand. They do not know what they're talking about. And 
so they lose faith in the promises of the league hmm. and you know that progressively becomes the case like Knickerbocker's reporting in the invasion of um, the Italian invasion of Abyssinia where the league is called upon to do something can do nothing same thing with the Spanish Civil War so progressively they you know throw up their hands at the idea at least of the league's version hmm. of internationalism but I mean, the point that you started off with is a really important point, which is that they had to, dictatorship had to be diagnosed. Hmm. It had to be chronicled before it could really be understood. It didn't come kind of fully fledged where you would know what it was if you saw it. And in fact, someone like Knickerbocker, who's an adamant anti-Nazi, is actually quite um, intrigued by Italian fascism. Hmm. And it seems like a lot of the time, maybe not a lot of the times, but I noticed from time to time they would explain it more so as a resurgence of monarchies of old and not as this newer idea of a modern dictatorship. What is kind of the difference there? How did that come to be where if there's an authoritarian leader, we see them as a dictator and not as this king or monarch of old? No, exactly. I mean, what they're tracing is the is the desire to intervene in every part of daily life mm. so that it wasn't just absolute power, right, which ostensibly monarchs had had, but it was an entire attempt at the control of a population. And that was, you know, thought policing, that was propaganda, that was control of the economy, that was the elimination of all sorts of intermediary institutions, you know, essentially an attempt to eliminate civil society itself. And they see that because they have really good contacts, right? They're friends with, you know, Austrian Viennese newspaper reporters. They are, they go to the theater. They have really good contacts, uh, you know, especially among kind of reporter types and mm. intellectuals and bohemian types. So when you were writing, you had to go through a lot of their very personal and intimate letters and you had to decide, okay, what is vital to the book? What should I use so that the readers can genuinely understand who I'm writing about? But there's also this line that you had to decide upon where maybe that's best left private. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with those decisions? And did it kind of surprise you going through that process? It's such a good question. Um, and it's a good question because in a way, what was odd about it is that my dilemma was their dilemma, um, meaning that they had been the people, and this is part of the, one of the arguments of the book, who really opened up these spheres of private life mm -hmm. and what could be written about. And so John Gunther in Inside Europe is writing, you know, about the temper tantrums that the Polish dictator Pilsudski throws, mm. um, or he's writing about Dolphus, the Austrian dictator's childhood. Um, you know, things that have been told to him in confidence, or did Ataturk have a venereal disease, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And those were the sorts of topics that his editors back in Chicago were like, you can't print that, we're not printing that. And yet he writes a book in which those dynamics are really at the heart. And that's because the argument of the book is that the kind of psychopathologies of these people, not just dictators, but also democratic leaders, are going to wreck our civilization. And so they had made a kind of call about um, the relationship between private life and public life. And then of course they'd left all of those records 
on purpose, I think, to try to document the phenomenon that they had experienced, which was the absolute collapse of any kind of fortification of the domestic sphere from geopolitical turmoil. So for me then the line became what is really essential to convey to the reader the immediacy of that dilemma as they experience it and the kind of fraught nature of it. Hmm. So what I wanted you to be able to do as the reader is actually to hear them wrestling with the the ways in which they're kind of metabolizing the world crisis. Because that was something that when I started the book had seemed really strange to me because I grew up mm -hmm. in you know, having that dividing line between sort of the world outside and the world mm -hmm. inside. And of course, I think that that's gone for a lot of people, you know, mm -hmm. and over the last, say, 10 years. Um, but reading them was almost, it, there was a way in which I wanted to convey what it was like for that to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is happening in private. It seems like um, a lot of their own approaches to journalism and how personal they made it for themselves has bled into the kind of journalism that people are really turning to nowadays and uh, how since everyone has a phone, there's the idea that, oh, we don't need to send reporters anywhere because they already have their phones. They'll be taking pictures. Ukrainians are sending videos every day of what's going on in their neighborhoods. What is the point of sending foreign correspondents there? But they really do dissect these stories. And I was wondering if you saw kind of journalists today or um, maybe certain organizations that have an approach closer to theirs or what kind of influences do you see from them today? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So I guess so I adamantly feel that foreign correspondence matters and that it matters because you need people who are able to compare situations who actually have firsthand experience in a number of different countries or crisis zones in the same ways in which we think you know, it's good for political scientists or historians to be able to compare. It's the same thing with journalists. And I think it really, really matters. And so as important as local reporters are to any situation, the perspective of the outsider is one that you really can't replace. Mm. Um, but exactly as you say, I mean, what we, we have a much, much broader canvas for people now to you know, write the kind of thing that Jimmy Sheehan was writing his personal history. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, so many journalists, right? I'm thinking about Matthew Aiken, his amazing book about refugees, um, recently published, that that's a kind of personal history that he's writing or equally well, you know, really lucid commentators on contemporary events, like say Helen Thompson or Adam Tooze, who are also trying to explain to us what is it like to actually try to think your way through this and be a person um, mm. in this moment um, are good inheritors of these traditions. That brings me to uh, a fun question that I've been wanting to ask for a while since all five of them seem to be really good at 
making the relationship between their subject a little bit more casual than would have been expected at the time. Who of the five do you think would have been the best for their own podcast? Where they have these different world leaders or politicians on to have conversations. That question. That's a great question. I mean, Dorothy Thompson would have had, of course, an extraordinary podcast. But so all of them, you know, all of them do broadcasting, Mm -hmm. and so um, Knickerbocker has his at the ringside of history program, and Dorothy Thompson is broadcasting constantly. She's got a program on, and John Gunther fills in on the Blue Network. Mm. Um, she and supplies the narration for various things, including a very moving documentary about Czechoslovakia um, that's produced in 1938. Um, but I, mean, I can well imagine, a friend of mine um, pointed out that Frances Gunther would have been the greatest on Twitter, and it's mm. true, because she's so aphoristic mm-hmm. and cutting. So and there's one-liners. Been, yeah, there are one-liners. She's like, Full of one-liners, she would have been brilliant, brilliant on Twitter. And hmm. if you're, if you have a writing block, t- Twitter is great, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because she could produce like probably five tweets a day, um, and that would have been enough. I'm sure she would have loved the at feature as well. Oh, completely. Yes, 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 yes <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really, really good question because there's one of the, part of the fun of writing the book was that they feel like such startlingly modern mm-hmm. people. It was very hard to imagine that they weren't sort of sitting right there in the room. Their mm. subjectivity, to put it in a fancy way, felt entirely kind of familiar. And they seemed very ahead of their time. Yeah, or it's the, it's the quality of the 20s and the 30s. I mean, in the book, I describe this as that they have a kind of rationalism. Mm. You know, they're, it's not that they are so apart from the Victorian sort of modes in which their parents were raised. That's still sort of something that's familiar to them. But of course, the Freudianism and all the psychoanalysis that they've imbibed means that they really understand the unconscious and are totally tuned into it. But there's a collision between those kinds of impulses, the rationality on the one hand, and then the full embrace of the idea of irrationality. Was there anything that you wanted to include that you maybe didn't have the space for, or that you weren't? certain enough to add yeah. it? It's a, that's a really interesting point because I mean, the book is long and so there are many things that I thought, oh, I really wish that I could say more about this. I don't mm. know that it would matter to mm. anyone else. This was my first venture in actually writing biographically. Mm. And one of the things to your point about you know, what do I wish that I'd known is I spent a really long time trying to track down some of the biographical details because they matter so much. And in some cases, all you have are a bunch of people with different stories. And so trying to make sense of that and how to kind of, you know, how to create enough of a stable center for the reader. Did any of their relatives or kids perhaps, did you talk to any of them? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, and they were hugely important. Um, so, for instance, Miranda Knickerbocker, who's H.R. Knickerbocker's um, daughter, was uh, wonderful to speak to because she remembered she was one of these you know, kids who had a really acute memory of things that she had seen or ways that she'd felt. And she knew a lot of the friends. Um, the same thing was true for Dennis, the late Dennis 
Fodor, so Marcel Fodor's mm. um, son, who himself became a journalist, and he had an amazing, amazing memory for these people. And again, a really that kind of sense that kids have of being able to cut through all of the adult pretenses and see the dynamics that are really going on. So he would say some stuff that would actually just stop me in my tracks. Mm. But I was really, really lucky to be able to talk to the children and then also to um, Jane Gunther, who is John Gunther's second wife, okay. um, who died in 2020. And she too, oh. she had known um, uh, the circle really well, especially um, Vincent Sheehan. So she had a lot sister to say, or I could test hypotheses and say, well, you know, what about this? Do you think that's right? Mm. She would say, no, not at all. There's so <laughs> many everything. stories yes. for all of them. So many threads. And then how would you make it into a movie? Oh. <laughs> because it's all five of them. Do you, have you thought about that? Yeah, it's more, I think it's more of a limited series. Than mm, limited series. There's so many, it's, it's them, and but then also there's so many places where they are, so many places that are important. And so genuinely, the sort of book is ricocheting from Berlin to Shanghai to London to New York. So would, it, would the book, would the movie still be called Last Call at the Hotel Imperial? Oh gosh, who knows, movie people always change everything. Yeah. <laughs> if you have to say. If I were just like, you know, on sort of in the cloud of, you know, imagination and dreaming, I think, the idea of actually unfolding the story over multiple episodes, mm -hmm. um, in part because there's so much territory to cover. This was a cool thing about them to me, which is that they brought all of these strands of the world together. So as a Europeanist, you know, trained in German and British history, I oftentimes would think, wow, so they're actually carrying information from the Russians to the British, to the Americans, to the Germans. And not, and seeing those kinds of networks come really sharply into focus of information and yeah. how information is moving was really fascinating. Well, thank you very much again. Thank you for having us here. Um, if you're interested in her book, once again, it's called The Last Call at the Hotel Imperial The Reporters Who Took On a World at War. Do you have any other projects going on that you're looking forward to? I do, and I hope that actually it returns me a little bit to this zone, uh, the kind of international zone, but also to, um, you know, German-speaking Europe, at least to some extent. So yeah. I'm not quite sure of it, so I won't say more now, but yeah, I mean, it's, although when I finished this, it was really, really hard to envision what to do next because they are a gloriously interesting group of people and, it felt like a real loss actually turning in the manuscript. I was mm. glad for the book to come out, but I was also really sorry not to spend, you know, every day in their company. So. One of the most bitter things after reading the book for me was that I can't meet any of them. They all just seemed like such incredible and unique individuals that played an important role in history, but not one where their names have been written down by the masses. Not everyone knows the names but a lot of people know of the stories and know of the ideas that they wrote about. Yes, that's a perfect way of putting it. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, keep an eye out for new content across our various social media platforms.
The Butchdieber Institute for Austrian-American Studies promotes an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including lands of the former Habsburg Empire, by awarding grants and fellowships, organizing lectures and conferences, and publishing the Journal of Austrian-American History. We engage with a broader public audience through digital programming, including videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you next time.